Welcome everybody to From Rock Bottom to Badass. And today I have my brand new friend, Jeff Deskovic. Hello, Jeff. Hi, nice for, thanks for having me. You're so welcome, I'm pretty excited. So let's get the party started. Tell all the people, who are you? So sure, so I'm the founder uh, of the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which frees wrongfully convicted people. We've been able to get 11 wrongfully convicted people home. We've helped pass three laws aimed at preventing wrongful conviction. I'm an advisory board member of the coalition group, It Could Happen to You, which um, foundation is part of that coalition, and we helped pass an additional uh, five laws. Um, it's on the Global Advisory Council for Restorative Justice International. Uh, I'm an attorney. Uh, I have a master's degree in criminal justice, and I do this advocacy work uh, because uh, I spent 16 years in prison myself from age uh, 17 to 32 for a murder and rape, which I did not commit. Uh, that was exonerated through DNA testing, which identified the actual perpetrator. So I went from that rock bottom place to now being an attorney whose life is dedicated to freeing wrongfully convicted people with a nonprofit that facilitates that. Well, hell yeah, that is phenomenal story. I've been watching, a, um, I've well, not been watching, but I've watched some things about like wrongfully convicted people. And these are like some tremendous stories. And I'm, I've actually been really interested in that lately. Um, can you tell us who you are as a person? Like, what are some things about you that identify you? Like, I'm a mom, I'm a sister, I'm a wife, like that sort of thing. Like, who are you? Wow. Um, I I'm someone with a sense of purpose. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a friend. I'm a family member. Um, I'm somebody who likes to appreciate the small things in life. And I, I'm a trier. So I like trying new things. So I like from new activities, experiences, different types of food, going new places, travel. Yeah. Uh, so I'm that. And maybe I would say that I, Maybe I'm said. I would say I'm sentimental. I'm someone who's uh, sentimental as well, and who has a also has a sense of history and uh, meaning and things well beyond me. Sweet, that's really cool. I love I love your choices there. Um, I also like to try new things. You identify with having this amazing rebirth story, right? Can you talk about that Absolutely. situation, like um, who you were before? and and how you had this rebirth scenario sure so well i started out as a i started out as a 16 year old i was in high school i kind of from that point backwards i would say i kind of lived a double life i didn't think of it that way at, at the time but there was my life in school and there was my life out of school my life out of school there was a lot of kids that lived in the apartment complex and i was one of the main people that would suggest what we would do and usually what i would want to do would, would be what the group of us would do whether that was you know riding bikes play monopoly play uh, play basketball or go to the movies or swim but then there was uh my life in school where that was a different set of kids that i really was not familiar with so i was kind of quiet to myself withdrawn tight uh you might you might say uh, they probably thought of me as a nerd. I'm sure. Uh, then uh, you know, it's my you know life in prison uh, when I was wrongfully uh, imprisoned, uh, which uh, I spent from 17, 17 to 32 there for the murder and rape, which I mentioned to you that I was uh, exonerated of through DNA testing. So there, I was kind of I was again kind of quiet into myself, but just for a different reason. I mean, I really didn't want to 
call attention to myself. Um, so I really wasn't someone that was trying to be popular. I wasn't drawing attention to my case, but you know, I was very social in prison. And in a lot of ways, I feel like my life there was more analogous to my life after school. I mean, I used to play basketball and I played chess and I used to play ping pong. And, you know, I used to like talking sports with people that when those were four different distinct groups of people. So there was my life there, but I certainly was not anything like, uh, some sort of uh, civil rights person or somebody right. always grieving things or I wasn't a litigator or anything like that while I was in prison. So there's my life there. And then, you know, there was my life out of prison before compensation. So, I mean, life was very hard for me in my first five years of freedom, keeping in mind that I was released with nothing. So, yeah. uh, you know, I had, to, yeah. So I had to deal with, uh, you know, psychological after effects, the stigma of having been in prison yeah. wrongfully, but still there for 16 years. Technology had passed me by, uh, you know, cell phones, GPS, internet hadn't been created yet. Culture was different, neighborhood different. Uh, people, uh, they look different, different people live there. And uh, I struggled a lot financially and I had to do things I never did before. I never before lived on my own or went shopping or wrote a check or had a balanced budget. Person that feels out of place. I don't fit in. I have almost no social circle at all. I mean, my extended family had become a stranger to me. It felt like I was in a parallel world and I had all these different problems going on around me that I mentioned to you. But at the same time, you know, I was uh, someone who was trying to arrive, I was trying to find myself. So while having all of that difficulty, I did become like an advocate individually, just speaking around the country and doing media interviews, I became a columnist and started meeting with elected officials. And I wanted to pair my advocacy work with formal education. So I was able to get a scholarship for Mercy College to finish the bachelor's, which I was short of 10 classes while in prison, got a master's degree from John Jay College. And then it was kind of my life after that, where I finally got compensated. And that really changed things a lot for me. And uh, I didn't have that mental strain on me anymore. I knew I could pay my bills because, you know, I was always, had always been passed over for gainful employment. I was able to kick my advocacy work up to the next level and start the nonprofit organization. And at some point in the course of helping to free the 11 people, I I feel like I wanted more empowerment. I wanted more ability and I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table and tired of sitting at the front row of the courtroom and hence going into law school and becoming an attorney now. And then I've entered some of the, some of the cases co-counsel. So really my identity now is I'm much more established publicly. You might say I'm kind of like a quasi public figure. I mean, I have a large enough profile that my my endorsement's been sought in 11 different political races. And I'm frequently on the, in the news and I've done some speaking internationally and I'm a lot more confident in my skin now. And I feel, you know, and uh, I, I just, I feel like the extra credential, not just it's earned the additional respect as an advocate, but it's opened a lot of other opportunities for me. And, you know, I, I feel much I feel even better about myself than I did before because normally when people are exonerated, people in the, even in the innocence movement, they like you to stay in a box. You know, you're an exoneree. You're not like an advocate, you're an exoneree. But no, I'm more, not only am I more than that, not only am I an advocate, but now I'm an attorney as well. Mm -hmm. So 
Okay. So let's backtrack. So there's all those different stages. Yeah. Tell me how in name did you get how why were they looking at you as as a rapist and a murderer? Well, I got on the police radar because they interviewed a lot of students from the high school and some of them told the police, some of the students told the police that I they might want to speak with me. So that's how I came to their attention. And I was a sensitive teenager, so I had an emotional reaction to my classmate being killed. So the cops thought that that was suspicious since you're all emotional over someone you barely knew. She was just a couple classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. And then they also got a psychological profile uh, from the NYPD, which claimed to have the characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I matched that. So that's how I got on their radar. That's a different question as to how I got arrested. And, and just like it's a different question as to how I got convicted. Right. I want to know all of it. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I wanted to wait for the prompt. I wanted to, I wanted to know wait all for of it. Yeah. Of course. Sure. So, in terms of how I got arrested, uh, the police coerced the false confession out of me. So, let me unpack that a little bit. So for about six weeks, the police played this cat and mouse game with me, in which half the time they would speak to me as a suspect and the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. They would say things like the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They'd ask me opinion questions, congratulate me that my opinion was correct. So prior to being a teenager, I wanted to be a cop when I grew up. And so them pretending like I'm on the team, they're doing this quasi-police work along my age of 16 was how they pulled the wool over my eyes. Right. Uh, in terms of, and so that's just the run up to it. In terms of the coerced false confession itself, they got me to agree to take a lie detector test by telling me some new information had come into the, to the, to the, uh, their file and they wanted to share that with me, but I'd have to pass the polygraph. So next day, instead of going to the high school, I went to the police station for the test because it was a school day, my mother and grandmother thought I was in school, so they didn't call around looking for me. They drove me from Peekskill, which is in Westchester County, New York, the suburbs, ethnically diverse, middle-class place. They drove me 40 minutes away by car to the town of Brewster, which was in Putnam County. So that meant that I, can't, I couldn't leave other than with them. I was totally dependent upon them. Uh, I didn't have, there was no attorney present. I didn't, wasn't given anything to eat the whole time I was there. They gave me a brochure which explained how the polygraph worked, but it had a lot of big words in it that I didn't understand. But then I thought, well, I'm there to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. From there, uh, they put me in, a, and by the way, the polygraph, this was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator. He was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as a cop. I had no idea he was in law enforcement. Uh, then he put me in a small room, gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. And then he attached me to the polygraph machine. He launched into his third degree tactics. So he invaded my personal space. He raised his voice at me, kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me to do the polygraph test result that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. That really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he'd been holding them off, but couldn't do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he added, look, just tell them what they want to hear. You can go home. You're not going to be out. You're not going to be arrested. 
So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long term, just being concerned my safety in the moment. I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else knew where I was either loomed very large yeah. in my mind. I was I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. And then, you know, the possibility of harm, this false promise. So I made up a story based upon the information that they had given me in the course of the interrogation. By the time everything was said and done, I collapsed on the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Obviously, I was arrested. Yeah. So that's so that's how they coerced the false confession. Gosh. In terms of did you want to ask it? No, I mentioned how I lost the trial? Did you want to? All right, I don't want to. I don't want. All right, okay. All right. So in terms of how I lost the trial, so there was a DNA test result that came from the FBI lab before the trial that showed that semen found in the victim didn't match me, and you know, but then and but then the prosecutor got this medical examiner to commit fraud. He claimed that he forgot to document medical evidence that he said showed the victim had been promiscuous. So in other words, they were able to argue that she had been sleeping around and must have slept with somebody prior to my murdering and raping her, that that was how the DNA didn't match me, but yet I was still guilty. They, they even mentioned, and she, her family wasn't coming to court, so they had no idea that her reputation was being trashed like this. And then he mentioned someone by name that he claimed had slept with the victim, but he never had a DNA test performed in order to prove that. He, he never even called him as a witness. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. The public defender that I, and, and when the cops testified about the coerced confession, they left the threat and false promise out of their story. My lawyer, who was a public defender, basically didn't defend me. He never, he never called as a witness my alibi. He was actually playing with football when a crime happened. Uh, he rarely met with me. Uh, he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. He literally never asked any questions of this medical examiner. He never explained to the jury the significance of the deed. Used that to challenge the confession. He should have never represented me because this person that the prosecutor was falsely saying had slept with the victim was represented by another person in his same office and specifically by the lawyer supposed to be supervising him on my case. And lastly, he wouldn't allow me to testify. So, you know, my interrogation was not videotape, not audio tape, no signed confession, just the cop's word for it. They left the threat and false promise out of their story and he wouldn't allow me to testify. And so added all, added all up, I was found guilty of a murder and rape, which I did not commit. And I was given a 15 to life sentence, which the judge gave me despite him saying to me that he, he, he didn't, he, uh, he's, despite him saying uh, that maybe I was innocent. So I was then sent to a men's maximum security prison with a 15 to life sentence. So can you talk about how all of this changed you as a person? Like I know like being in my own, definitely not as severe situations, but like you know, being in intimidating situations, falling victim to like persuasion. Like, I think that's something that when you, we can all sort of relate to from our youth, like happened in some little way or another, like we fell victim to somebody's manipulation, persuasion, and kind of had to learn the hard way that like, we can't be so trusting or that we need to defend ourselves better. We need to, you know, have tougher skin or whatever. Yours is very extreme, but like, 
looking back, like, I feel like that could have easily been me, right? If I was in the same situation, like I would have had the same reactions. I would have had the same emotional responses. I would have probably, you know, been able to be just as easily persuaded and manipulated into saying the wrong things, right? So like, how did that experience of that and, you know, whatever you would like to speak about, about what prison was like for you, how did these things change you as a person? Sure. So uh, in terms of what prison was like, and then I'll get to how it changed me, in terms of what prison was like, uh, I would say it was a nonstop obstacle course with the guards, prisoners, and civilians as obstacles to the main goal, which was to overturn the conviction and regain my freedom. Prison was very violent. There were three or four stabbings or cuttings every day. There was a lot of violence that didn't involve weapons. There was gang activity. Uh, so there were, you know, and then I was always worried that, you know, what I was incarcerated for would become known because there's a vigilante mentality towards people who've been convicted of sex offenses. Mm -hmm. So there were several times in the course of my incarceration, maybe like five or six times where I was um, beat up based on that. Uh, the food was terrible. Uh, sometimes it was burned. Sometimes it wasn't fully cooked. Uh, the guards were abusive verbally. Um, then uh, it wasn't just the lack of freedom, but it, even just a physical thing, but also, you know, I had to repeatedly fight off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, suicidal ideation. I mean, in the course of my incarceration, I lost seven appeals. I mean, that was like I was wrongfully convicted all, all over again. You know, my hope to keep going was based on belief in God and, you know, and, and believing that I was going to win the next appeal because I was innocent and I thought that, I, you know, I still believed in the system. Uh, I used to go to the law library, so learning the law gave me a sense of empowerment. I used to read articles about other people who were exonerated, and that would be as inspiration to keep going. I created this big place in my head where I, where I would, when I would play basketball or ping pong or chess, I'd pretend like I was a professional player and so was everyone else. But it's not like kids fooling around in a playground. This was, I needed to get out of the prison for a couple of hours and that was the, the fake reality that I, I created for myself. Just like similarly, you know, you, you employ euphemisms. It's not, it's not my prison assignment in the morning or the afternoon. I'm going to school or I'm going to work. And it's not the prison warden. It's the superintendent. It's not the guards. It's the correction officers. Uh, I would collect, I would cut out pictures of nature scenes and hang them in the cell and just look at them and just kind of travel there mentally. Uh, there was a, another prisoner there that was wrongfully convicted also, and we used to keep each other going every six weeks. And ultimately, uh, Frank Sterling was his name, ultimately he was exonerated through DNA testing after 18 years, also a couple of years after me. So it wasn't just that we, I naively believed someone else. I mean, he actually was innocent. And last, uh, last two years that I uh, spent in prison, I have made contact with a pen pal that I didn't know previously. And I feel like he kind of showed up right at right at the nick of time because I was openly asking the stranger, should I quit? Should I give up? Should I just kill myself and be done? And I'm never gonna get out of here. So I really did hit that rock. I really did hit that rock bottom. Because, you know, I mean, I lost seven appeals that took up 11 years. Then I wrote letters for four years looking for help to find some new evidence without which I was permanently locked out of the courthouse. And then I went to the parole board, but because I maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility, I got turned down for parole there also. So hence my getting to the point where I was like at the end of my 
rope. I mean, it's like a bizarre theater of the absurd. Can you top this type of scenario? But let me ask. But let me. But let me just ask you how how I how I changed. You know. Um, well, firstly, I know that the justice system is broken. I'm sure of that. You know, uh, I don't have this naive, romanticized view of law enforcement. I don't paint everyone with it with the same brush. You know, I think I know they're good cops and good prosecutors, but there's also a lot of bad cops and a lot of bad prosecutors. I know for sure it's not a few bad apples, uh, for for sure. But you know, I think that, and, and certainly, you know, the the psychological after effects and the stigma are things that I certainly, you know, have impacted me. And I still try to rebuild my social life. That's still been kind of a challenge for me. But on the other hand, I mean, not everything was was bad either. I mean, there were good, some good things that came out of that terrible place. I mean, first of all, I have a sense of purpose. You know, I know that my place in the world is to free wrongfully convicted people, work to prevent that, do some work on the broader justice reform broader justice reform issues because I was subjected to a lot of those and the things I wasn't personally subjected to, I saw. And, and I don't believe the justice system should be that way. So I do have that sense of purpose. I do have that sense of inner peace. I, I learned a lot while I was in prison. I mean, from 1998 to 2006, I read three or four nonfiction books a week. I read books on self-help and relationships and books on politics and governmental abuse expose. So I feel like I learned a lot that way. I got the associates I completed towards the bachelors, which laid the foundation for when I was free. I got the, I finished the bachelors. I got the masters. I got the law degree. I learned Learned to, I learned how to type, which helps a lot using the computer in this information age. I learned to never give up, and and uh, I learned to set to set goals. And really, I appreciate even small things. I appreciate feeling the sun on my face, or fresh air, or freedom of movement. All those things mean mean a lot uh, to me. So, and I have this sense of inner peace as well in knowing what my place in the world is and why I'm here. And that's how I make sense of everything that. Happened. I mean, I don't think I would have gone on to live a difference-making, inner peace, rise above the turmoil type of thing. That 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 life that I that I have. I mean, when you face a traumatic situation of any kind, either it breaks you entirely and you lose your mind, or you become angry or bitter, or you just can't or you can't recover, or you can rise above it all and have like a sense of enlightenment and inner peace. And I'm fortunate that for me. I've gotten to the place of having the enlightenment and inner peace. Well said. So let's dive into that a little bit more. You mentioned having a belief in God that helped you get through. Can you talk about a little more about that spiritual side of this experience for you? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that I would have, I think that I would have killed myself, first of all, if I didn't believe in God and believe he was going to help to help me to overcome that scenario. So um, it definitely uh, helped me help, it helped me in that sense. And it did help me to achieve certain, like when I would, when I would pray or I would study, I mean, I, I would feel like a little bit of a recharge, a little bit of a spiritual recharge. And I wouldn't have had that in prison uh, without, without that. So it certainly helped me. It certainly helped me that way, but you know, I believe in the interconnectedness of all things, and I do believe that there is a higher power for sure. And you know, I, I'm kind of a liberal in this sense that, you know, I 
and I don't put a label to myself. I believe in God generally. I don't, I don't subscribe to one particular religion or another. I just believe in God generally, and I try to live a, a bright life. And whatever, I, I've been fortunate that in the course of my 14 years of freedom and doing advocacy work, which, you know, is very healing, cathartic, and meaningful uh, to me, it makes my suffering count for something. I've met people that in the course of doing that, that some people were Jewish and some were Protestant, some were Catholic, some were Muslim, some were Hindu, some were Buddhist, some had no formal faith at all. And I felt like, I didn't feel like any of them were any less committed than what I am. So I arrived at that place where, look, whatever works for you, whatever you believe, if that gives you your sense of your place in the world and it gives you some inner peace and makes your life meaningful, hey, do it. I encourage you in that. And if it happens to work its way naturally in the course of the conversation with me, talk about it, you know, but that that's, but on the other hand, when it doesn't, don't force, I don't need to be converted. Your actions should speak to that, but whatever it is that works for you. So, and, and I've gone to people, to, I've gone to religious events and religious places that where it was religious to other people. It wasn't to me, but to me, it was just something new and just appreciating someone else's faith and whatever the dogma was in the moment and just being supportive. So, I mean, I feel like that's kind of an evolution or revolution in my own thought, you know, that, that, that uh, I didn't necessarily have. Do you have any favorite quotes or sayings or mantras or mottos that like anything that you would say throughout your experience that like helped you get through those really difficult times? Like any just one, yes. what are they? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Sure. And at some point before the interview ends, I'd love to share a generic formula that I've extrapolated from my entire life journey that I think could apply generically across the board to, to anybody. So yeah. Make a note to hopefully do that for the interviews over. But okay. the one thing that helped me get through my experience was just my thought of never give up. And whenever I was ready to give up, whenever I could not go on anymore, and that was true when I was in prison and at struggling in my first five years of freedom without compensation and struggling to get through law school and struggling during the prep for the bar exam, which I ultimately passed on my first attempt, I would say to myself, you know, maybe this is the key moment. Maybe I was on the verge of a breakthrough, but because I quit, it's not going to happen now. So even though I can't go on anymore, I'm going to do it anyway, just to see what happens on the other side. You know, so that would be that, so that, that would, uh, and, and so there was that, and maybe a close second was you know, I, I'm kind of a proactive person. And before I do something, I like to create some kind of a strategy that I can have some confidence in that can get me to, so I play to win, okay? I, you know, when I was struggling, trying to learn four or five semesters worth of, to me, four or five classes worth of material in the last seven weeks, because I've done so much advocacy work before that, that I wasn't studying in a cohort fashion, I would come up with a plan that I thought could work for me to get everything on cap. So I didn't try to be pragmatic about it. Well, let me just pass three out of the five or go for four. No, I came up with the strategy that, that, that I would have a chance. So I think it's to, to, to work out. So I think it's important to always play to win. Okay, so how how can other people use, what, was, what were you talking about, your generic thing that people can yes. use? Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, so 
set a goal. So the first thing would be set a goal. So I'm thinking really about adverse situations, but it can apply to not adverse situations too, just regular, you know, an aspiration. But but let's just stick with an adverse thing for a minute. So uh, apply, uh, set a goal, have a realistic plan. You should be able to look at it three or four different ways before you finalize on it and be able to say to yourself, yeah, you know what? I, I can see how this might work. This plan might work. Be flexible. Remember that the goal's the goal. The plan's not the goal. So if an unexpected door or opportunity opens for you that brings you towards your goal, but it wasn't part of your plan, you still have to walk through that door and move forward. Yeah. Another thing is no excuses. So there might be a reason why something is harder for you to do, but no reason why you can't do it. Another thing is don't be afraid of hard work. So the odds of something just dropping into your lap are very slim. So it's more that you have to position yourself and work your rear end off so that a miracle could occur, you know, whether some opportunity unexpected will arise or somebody will open the door for you, but that's going to happen when you work really hard for something to happen. And then never give up, which I just expounded on after. And then once you've made it through, once you get through the other side, you have to reach back and help similarly situated people mm -hmm. and, and do some work on the preventative side as well. So that'll make your suffering count for something. It'll be healing. It'll be cathartic. It'll help make the world more meaningful. And I know that that situation, that that formula rather goes beyond wrongful imprisonment. So it could apply to somebody that's been, you know, faced discrimination, rate, you know, racism or sexism. I know people that have had obstacles and route to, you know, one career path, a goal or another that faced that. And not only did they overcome, but then they're doing some work to help others still struggling with that and well, on the preventative side. I've been in attendance in a fundraising event where the key speaker was a woman that had previously been sexually trafficked. So I know it can apply to that situation. And there's people that work it with, uh, there's women that are used to have been in domestic, uh, where they were abused domestically. And now mm -hmm. they help women in the same in the same way. And I know people that work with homeless population and they themselves at one time were homeless. So I know that it can apply to all those scenarios and, and a lot more. Those are just the extreme ones that really come to the to mind right now. Yeah, for sure. So that's right in alignment with the next question. So like when you're helping the men or people, right, that are being yeah, convicted. <laughs> Yes. What is the one piece of advice, like when you're looking back at them and you're kind of seeing yourself in them, right? What is the one, the one thing that you always say to everybody? I would, one thing I would say to everybody is be patient. This doesn't happen overnight, but, but also don't give up. So th those are the two, those are the two key things that I, that I say. And I, and I, and I mentioned, look, remember her. You know, it, I lost seven appeals. It took me 16 years. Not that we're planning for it to take that long for you. I'm, you know, me and my team, we're going to do everything we can to fix this for you as soon as we can. But th th there's no easy or quick wins. We're going to do the best that we can. But you, on your end of it, you have, you can't, you, you know, you can't, you know, you have to be patient. But I also need you to hold on mentally and, and, and emotionally as well. 
So where are you going from here? What is next for you on your journey? So I would say that I definitely I'm in route to being an even higher profile person, you know, like a civil rights, like a civil rights, um, you know, advocate national figure in that. Mm -hmm. I am looking, I'm looking to expand my foundation. I'd love to be able to have a chapter in each an office in each state and ultimately in each country because I really see wrongful conviction as being a worldwide problem rather than just a US problem in countries where we don't hear about this happening is because no one's being exonerated. Right. So there's those places. Uh, look, I see, you know, I, I'm hoping to have my book published, get the movie deal. And at some point, maybe, maybe in the next seven years, you know, perhaps I'll make the jump to from working in a nonprofit sphere to uh, running for district attorney, you know, to have a real conviction review unit and pursue policy changes and, you know, try to improve the system from, from within. So that's really where, that's really where I'm going. Beautiful. All right. So if anybody wants to figure out more about you, more about your foundation, can you tell them where to go and how to find you? Absolutely. Sure. So if they've enjoyed this interview today, I mean, there is a documentary short out about me called Conviction, which is on Amazon Prime. So they can certainly watch that. There is my website, www.deskovic.org. There's a web form there where people can email me. I'm also a public figure uh, page on Facebook. And, I, and so I have the page there and inst there's Instagram and LinkedIn. I mean, I get my messages there and I, and I, do, uh, I do answer people as well. And I just wanna mention that you know, we'll be able to expand into other states and ultimately on other countries as, you know, as, you know, public financial support happens. We do have a crowdfunding page on the Patreon website. I mean, dream with me for a minute, Rachel, if there were 25,000 people or 100,000 people that were willing to sacrifice $3 or $5 on a recurring basis, I mean, who would miss that yeah. in their pocket? But but that many people doing that on a recurring basis, we would be able to definitely uh, increase our capacity as to how many cases we could take, how many states that we can we can um, take cases in, and how many, you know, we're working now in three different states as far as policy work, uh, in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. But again, ultimately, we'd like to be able to work in all, in, you know, all the states, and, you know, we'll do that as we can. So I'd like to encourage people to think about that and, you know, help with social media and even getting the word of mouth out. So contribute, but then also share yeah, and if you're an attorney listening out there, you know you should uh, you should take consider taking one one case one wrongful conviction case pro bono in your lifetime. Think about you know doing that just as a way of you know giving back or paying forward. Yeah. Well, I encourage all of the listeners today to go check out the Deskovic Foundation online. I will have all the links to everything that Jeff talked about in the description. So check out all the things. And if you have been looking for a great place to tithe, what an amazing foundation to help. This stuff is real. Um, people all the time, normal, everyday people, people's kids, people's dads, people's 
moms, people's family members, right? Just normal people are getting wrongfully convicted of crimes and they need your support. People feel so hopeless when they're in this situation. I've watched so many documentaries about these kind of cases and it's just life-changing when somebody gets exonerated and is able to be freed after years and years and years spent in prison. And, and I, we could go on for like a whole nother show about the way that you're treated in the system after you're exonerated and there's no compensation, there's no, I'm sorry. And there's no nothing, right. That like is supposed to help make up for that. So like these people need to be supported. You guys, um, Jeff, thank you so much for being here. Um, it was such a pleasure. It was like a roller coaster ride of emotions listening to your story. And um, it's powerful. And I'm so glad that you were able to fight through all of the mental battles, all of the physical battles, and make it from your rock bottom to your badass. I'm so glad you're here. The world needs you. And I'm just, I'm a fan. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me and sharing your platform. This episode is brought to you by Phoenix Overhead Doors. At Phoenix Overhead Doors, you hire a repairman, not a salesman. That's their slogan. Phoenix Overhead Doors is repair and install service by a true repairman that won't upsell or upcharge. The only thing going up is your garage door. With over seven years of experience in the industry, they're the experts that you need to take care of your home or business. And that's why they'll treat your home as if it was their own. And that's why they get five-star ratings and great reviews from all of their customers. You can call and schedule your free estimate today and get honest and trusted advice that empowers you to make the best decision for your family on your budget. Check out www.phoenixoverhead.com for more info or to use their website to schedule yourself a free estimate. You can also call 502-528-0581. Phoenix Overhead Doors is guaranteed to rise.